Uh, hey, this is Ed. So this is a podcast, is that right? This is. Okay. We're officially podcasting right now. That's awesome. This is Straight from the Cutter's Mouth. Welcome to Straight from the Cutter's Mouth, a retina podcast. At least once a week, we bring you insights and perspectives from the world of vitreoretinal surgery. I'm your host, Dr. Jay Schreeder. I've been out of town and battling an illness for the last few days, so I apologize for our erratic posting schedule recently. Our game plan looking forward is to get back on track with this episode releasing Thursday, February 1st, followed by fresh episodes on Monday, February 5th, Thursday, February 8th, and Monday, February 12th. Today in episode 87, it's time for Masterpiece Retina Part 3. As we did in episodes 28 and 47, Dr. Aji Kurian, Dr. Will Park, and I do a sweep through time of some classic interesting retinal articles. We focus on topics across the spectrum of retinal detachment repair, including volume displacement and geometric alterations induced by scleral buckles, management of subretinal gas after pneumatic retinopexy, neurotrophic corneal ulceration after retinal detachment surgery, and intracranial migration of silicone oil. If you have thoughts or comments, please feel free to send them in. That gives us ideas. We plan our future episodes. Straight from the Cutter's Mouth is now happy to be joined by two uh, former guests who are now current guests. Uh, first, in alphabetical order, in person in Miami, Dr. Ajay Kurian from University of Rochester. Ajay, thanks for joining me. Great to be with you, Jay. And next, we have Dr. Uh, Will Park from Bitcher Retinal Surgery in Minneapolis, uh, Minnesota. Will, great to have you great back. Great to be back. Thank you, Jay. I appreciate it. So this is part three, Masterpiece Retina. These are articles that may be not so current. They're, they may be older, but they may or maybe within the last decade. But they're just kind of interesting little articles to give us five or six minutes of discussion each. We're going to try to hit about five of them today. And then if we have time, we'll do some more RD cases as we did last time. So the first article is entitled Volume Displacement of Scleral Buckles. It's John Thompson and uh, Ron Michaels. This was published in Archives of Ophthalmology, Volume 103, in December of 1985. Will, you want to t- tell us a little bit about this article? Yeah, sure. I like this article, and like several of the others that we'll be talking about, I'm not sure that the details of the article are really super critical to our surgical experiences, but just kind of thinking about it and thinking about some of the, at least for me, some of the shorthand estimates this article gives me. So anyway, it's a, this article looks at exactly what the title suggests, which is how much of the vitreous volume is displaced by scleral buckles of various heights and widths and locations on the eye. And the way that Thompson and Michaels did this was they took a mathematical model they developed, which was basically just a geometric model, and they compared it to a series of cadaver and live eye buckling procedures and measured how much of the vitreous volume was displaced in the cadaver eyes and the live eyes. And I, uh, I always like these, these interesting designs of these small studies where they look at kind of surgical effects on a physics level. And this was great. What they did was they took a variety of buckle uh, pieces that we'll talk about in a second. And in the cadaver eyes, they basically did a corvitrectomy and then put an infusion line in the eye with a pressure of 20 millimeters of mercury. And with a little, I think they put a little air bubble in the infusion line as a marker. And then as they put on these buckles of various heights and types, they watched how far up the fluid egressed out of the infusion line. And then when I took the buckle off, saw how far down it dropped, so they could determine from that how much volume was displaced. Brilliant research is that. Yeah. It was a great, great idea. And then on, and they did a similar thing to live eyes, which is they only did three live eyes, but they also used kind of displacement through the infusion line for them. And, and the kind of shorthand from this is that uh, a five-millimeter radial sponge buckle of, in their words, moderate height displaced approximately 0.2 milliliters of fluid, whereas a circumferential two-and-a-half-millimeter band like a 240 
again, of moderate height, displaced one, uh, 0.5 milliliters of fluid, and then a, a big tire of 10 millimeters width around the eye, displaced between 1 and 1.8 milliliters of fluid, so obviously a much, much larger volume. And they assumed the location was going to be relatively consistent based on the equator of the eye, and they assumed what they called arcuate indentation, and the moderate height was an estimate, and they did not look at actual length changes. So on my end of things, let's see what you guys think, but on my end of things, I just like the way they designed the study, like the way that they determined vitreous volume displacement, and it gave me some peace of mind knowing that when I put on, a, for instance, a 240 band of moderate height, it only displaces maybe half a milliliter of, of vitreous, and just reminds me I need to be thinking about where the vitreous goes, and if I'm not draining subretinal fluid, uh, in a case of both detachment, but I'm putting on a really high buckle, that volume has to go somewhere. Those are great points. I mean, the, the crazy thing is, is to just put those volumes in perspective, they said that, you know, for the, the large, wide circumferential buckles, which we don't use as commonly today, up to 45% of the volume could be displaced, right? So putting it in the context of an average vitreous cavity volume, that's pretty significant. And like you said, in a straight buckle case, this is important, right? Because like you said, the principle is you're going to decrease the volume of the eye. Uh, and when you decrease the volume, that volume has to go somewhere, so that either the pressure goes up or you do something to relieve that volume, whether it's draining subretinal fluid or an AC tap. So, Ajay, your thoughts on this one? Anything you, you want to add on top of what Will said? It's a super interesting study design, and they have some fairly practical outcomes that they looked at. One thing that this reminded me of was measuring the buckle in order to get a buckle height that, that you want. Do either of you guys do that when you're doing primary buckles? Will you want to go first? I've done it in the past, uh, and I've tried to shoot for maybe 10 millimeters or 12 millimeters of buckle heightening or of, of pulling the, uh, the encircling buckle that amount beyond where it's just approximating the globe to get a consistent design. But I just go by, I go by feel and look. I don't know about you guys. Yeah, I, I did it a couple times as a, as a fellow, but especially if it's a, if it's a buckle vitrectomy, I do it by feel and look, and you have a little more leeway because usually what I'll do is find a height do my bit, maybe pull it a little higher than I need during the buckle vitrectomy. And then towards the end, a good pearl that I picked up from another retinal surgeon was to drop the IOP and once you're done with your bit and your shape to maybe 10 or 15, and then kind of get a sense of where the height is and then get it to my final height before I finish. I think for a straight buckle, again, I do a kind of a feel and look. I still think that's a learning process. I think the hardest thing for me, and you guys can comment, is when you adjust the buckle height after draining subretinal fluid, right? So you have a soft eye, you've done cryo, and you're trying to figure out the height of the buckle. And again, Will, you can correct me, but the, what looks like the height of the buckle right after you drain is not often what it will be afterward as the eye kind of reinflates and repressurizes. Like that's where I think measuring can be helpful to make sure you're not totally off in terms of being too high or too, worse would be too low in that scenario where you're not supporting things. Yeah, I think that's I think that's true. I also I just on a practical level, and I tell this to our fellow too, is that when you drain, oftentimes you'll lose your view right after you drain, if especially if it's a big drain, just because the, perhaps the ID compensates or you get some I don't know pigment release in the vitreous. I don't know what it is, but when when you do your big drain, the view is just not quite as good as you'd like it to be, and so you better have a pretty decent idea about where your buckle is before then, ideally, either by measuring or just by already having estimated the look. So that's, that, that brings up an interesting question. I'll, I'll ask Ajay first. So do you tighten your buckle and then drain? Because the way I was taught is I drain first and then tighten, and then I'll measure and make sure I'm not off if I don't have an awesome view. I think it depends on how you drain, right? Because if, you, if you're, do you do a cut down? I don't. 
Oh, you don't? Oh, well, then, I, then I'm, I have little to stand on here. <laughs> but, <laughs> so I, the old teaching was that if you're doing a cut-down drain, it's helpful to have a, a relatively low, loose encircling buckle when you do it and then tighten it after, whereas if you're doing a needle drain, I, I think it was better to have a, a higher buckle when you were doing the drainage. But I don't know if that's something that is practically relevant to people these days or not. No, and maybe that maybe that's something I should try. Maybe I'm merging two things because we had attendings and fellowship who do cut downs and we had attendings who do needle drains. They all would kind of do the same thing, which was drain, maintain pressure in the eye with either cotton tips or a cranking on the, the silks around the muscle, and then tightening it so the eye never gets too soft. But I don't see any huge disadvantages to tightening and then draining. I guess the only thing would be, again, getting a sense of your height. But you can, you can always adjust that afterward. I don't know if you have any thoughts, Ajay. So one of my main primary buckle teachers taught with uh, measuring. And so he definitely preferred tightening first, doing the measuring, and then draining afterwards. And so I've pretty much adopted that for my primary buckles. Uh, certainly with my buckle bits, I adjust it based on height when I'm doing the surgery. But, but for my primary buckles, I tend to measure, actually. So what do you measure? What's your number that you measure? I do 11. So right in between your uh, 10 and 12. I knew I knew I was very close <laughs> to the perfect number, and I was just right on each side of it. Andre is always about perfection. <laughs> well, last thought before we move on, because, Ian, this is supposed to be short, but this was an interesting article to talk about. And the next article kind of ties into this a little bit and kind of flows from this. But speaking of measuring, are you guys measuring? So in, in a straight buckle, we usually measure the posterior most break to make sure it's supported, and then we want to place our buckle there. But when you're doing a buckle retraction, are you guys measuring back from the muscles? Or are you placing based on look? Are you What are you guys doing for your buckle vitrectomies? I'll let Ajay go first. So I usually just, so I don't measure where the break is necessarily. If for some reason I thought that the break was really posterior and I would be worried about not reaching there, then that would be something that I would think about beforehand, either putting on element or something like that. But usually I go back about four millimeters. I tend to like putting my buckles actually a little more posterior. Will, do you measure four or four and a half with the caliper or do you just eyeball it? I, I eyeball it too. I start at four and I edge posteriorly, exactly like you said, if there's posterior pathology or if there's high myope or, and just in general, to be honest, I cheat posteriorly. Yeah, I agree. I, I mean, I kind of eyeball it like you guys do. I see where the muscle is and I kind of inspect the quadrant and see how far back the vortex is and get an idea of how much space is there. Because a lot of these buckle bit patients we're doing are very high myopes. Do so you have a ton of room back there? And so what you don't want to do is put the buckle and end up barely supporting the aura and you're kind of in the slurry body because it's this very long eye. So I always kind of tell the fellows, it's always a little more posterior than you think, and just make sure that you're not, you know, the vortex is, you shouldn't go more posterior than the vortex, right? Because then you get into problems with choroidal fusions, and, and that's what you want to avoid. But if you don't see the vortex, then you should try to cheat a little bit more posterior and get good support. So, well, the next article we're going to talk about speeding off is geometric alterations produced by encircling scleral buckles, biometric and clinical considerations. Harris, Blumacrantz, Whitpen et al., this was published 87. So we're moving forward in time. This is in Retina. And Will, you're our buckle guru, so I'll let you talk about this one, and then I'll let Ajay chime in the next one. So your thoughts on this one, and what it kind of, why do you like it? Well, first off, I'm definitely not the buckle guru, because Ajay measures, and because Ajay actually said at the end of this conversation he wants to describe the actual mathematical equation that, that Michael <laughs> sent. Uh, we'll go into that later on. He's going to do a 45-minute video for the website. <laughs> So I think I came across this during like my first or second year of residency, and I've been moderately obsessed with this article ever since. And, uh, <laughs> and I, I still definitely don't understand it. So I shouldn't. I certainly shouldn't be. Uh, what I say should not be gospel considering this thing. But but this is yet another kind of small cadaver eye series 
and kind of math routine where they look at the effect of buccal indentation. And Harrison Blumenkrantz and colleagues, they wanted to reemphasize that the height of the buckle, the width of the buckle, and location of the buckle are important in determining the alteration in the shape of the eye that they create. And they, uh, again, made some assumptions, one of which is that the equator is consistently 12 millimeters behind the limbus. And they did cadaver eyes, maintaining the intraocular pressure with infusion line through the optic nerve. And I did a couple of kind of cool ways to measure things. To measure the, the indentation width on the sclera, they would basically put the buckle in place, dip it in liquid nitrogen to freeze it, and then measure the width as where the curvature of the eye begins to alter. So not necessarily where the buckle itself is, but where the eye curvature starts bowing in a little bit, which is frequently quite a bit broader than what the buckle itself is. And uh, I think that's one of the really cool kind of take-home points in this that we all kind of forget, which is that if you put a three-and-a-half millimeter encircling buckle around the eye, your, your buckle effect internally is not three-and-a-half millimeters. It's quite a bit broader than that because of the sloping in of the sclera. And then they measure the height based on a series of diameter measurements adjusting for the width of, of the buckle piece itself. And then they basically determined that there, there's kind of a linear increase in, oh, sorry, let me back up a little second. When they did their measuring, when they measured the uh, amount of encircling buckle they would pull in to tighten, they could determine the buckle height that's achieved by that. So if you pulled in for 30 millimeters of shortening, which is quite a bit longer than Ajay's, you got, I think, about a three and a half or 3.8 millimeter buckle height, which is a reasonably high buckle. But let's say we choose 10 millimeters. Yeah, we choose 10, mil, 10 millimeters worth of band shortening. You get a nice almost 2 millimeter buckle height, and you get approximately 7 millimeters worth of functional buckle width, mm-hmm. even though it may only be a, a 41 band they used in the study. And then you get approximately, on this study, I think it was about half a millimeter of axial length change. So uh, I just use that as my shorthand from this, which is basically if you use a 41 band, you get half a millimeter of axial length change, you get maybe two millimeters of buckle height, and you get approximately seven millimeters of buckle width if you raise it by 10 millimeters. So uh, I'm going to let Avi chime in a second. I think the two things you said that I think are most interesting are when you think about the buckle height and buckle width from the 41 band, you don't need that much height, I meaning you don't have to pull it that tight to get a supporting of a given width, right? So to, to get the supporting effect you need, especially if you're doing a buckle vitrectomy, it doesn't need to be super high. And maybe even a straight buckle, if you're supporting it and you oppose the retina and the break, you don't need a super high buckle to get the effect over the the area you want, even if they have a very broad abnormal vitreous base. Uh, The second thing is, which you didn't reference because I guess it's not as relevant because we don't use these elements. If you look at the older elements they used to use, massive changes in axial length if you look at what would happen. I mean, you're talking about pretty hefty changes in refraction with some of the older elements. So those were the two things that came to mind besides what you said when I was looking at this article and what you said. Aja, your thoughts? This is an interesting paper, just like the previous one. I think what you really hit on with the width of the buckle effect is something that you'd think about, but it was just nice in this paper that they quantified it so elegantly. And so to really be able to understand that feature is very helpful. So... Your magic number will 10 to 12. That, that, again, you said that's kind of the rule you follow that gets you where you want. I guess it's interesting. I mean, none of us would consider even going 15 or 20. I mean, I, I don't know what the highest would be. It's, it's, it's amazing to see the slope of this as they kind of measure it out, though. Yeah, I can't remember the last time that I felt the need to bring the entire encircling buckle much higher than the kind of standard amount. Occasionally, if I, if I need to have a little more height, I just put something else on it. Mm-hmm. Like a, an additional like, element. Yeah. 
Yeah. The, the other thing that maybe again dated, uh, or maybe they're talking about, maybe if you pull it too high, in the, in the discussion, they have this interesting part when they're talking about PVR, and they talk about high, I'll quote, a high broad buckling effect may counteract contractile changes in the vitreous space, resulting in a more favorable surgical outcome. It goes on to say that the, you can get a thin three and a half millimeter band, which is the 41 band, uh, with comparable height and width as the broader elements they described. But then they talked about maybe the horizontal shortening could cause these bands to erode through the sclera. I think, again, we're not using it at the heights, hopefully. We're not using it in those, unless someone has a scleromalacia or some issue. I've never really seen or heard, thankfully, knock on wood, the buckle eroding all the way through the sclera. But I think that may have been an issue, especially if you're pulling it super high. I guess in theory it could happen. I don't know what you guys thought about that. Yeah, mirror gel used to do that too. I don't know if you guys have seen much of that. I never saw it. Thankfully, but I've heard the horror stories. Ajay, you? I've never seen mirror gel or another regular buckle penetrating through the eye. So let's let's move on to the next one. The next one is the management of subretinal gas following attempted pneumatic retinal reattachment. We're still in 1987. This was published in Ophthalmology. McDonald, uh, Abrams, Irvin, and et al. And uh, Ajay's going to take us through this one. Tell us about this one, Ajay. Sure. So this is a publication looking at a fairly uncommon complication of pneumatic retinopexy, which is gas going underneath the retina. And so they describe a series of cases in which this happened. In all the cases, they had the the fish egg gas bubbles um, during the time of injection, and some of those basically gained access to the subretinal space through the retinal break. And so they talked about different ways of managing it. And so of the seven cases, three of the patients were actually able to position their head and have the gas actually back out through the, the break. One of them underwent a sclerobuckling procedure, and the other three um, had vitrectomy also. And so, fortunately, of the cases, uh, five out of the seven were reattached, and so they were just going over different approaches towards managing this fairly rare complication. Have you guys seen this in the past? I have, uh, because we did some more pneumatics in my training than we do down south. I have seen this. I, I saw one case of this done by uh, one of my colleagues and seen it again. It was fish eggs, large break, snuck under, and was there. It was a pretty small gas bubble, so we watched it for a little bit, but ultimately it was going to prevent the break from really kind of opposing because it just would not migrate from that spot. Um, attending to different things. I mean, they, they talked about maybe sometimes you can depress over the area and migrate the bubble away from that area. And if the bubble is, you know, moved away, maybe it can reattach. But in that case, they ended up needing a vitrectomy. And uh, I think that it's interesting that of the four cases that were reattached without positioning, I mean, they needed surgery. Only one of them was a straight buckle. The rest all involved vitrectomy. And so one of the things that's always in my mind is I used to talk to the residents when I was a fellow was if you have somebody who you would rather do a buckle than a vitrectomy for whatever reason that you maybe didn't want to do a vitrectomy. If you're doing a pneumatic, you always have to think about the worst case scenario that if it ended up not going well, you may need to do a vitrectomy. And um, now you're committing someone who may have just been a straight buckle to a buckle vitrectomy or a straight vitrectomy. And a good example of that would be a patient where the hyaloid is clearly down and maybe you don't want to go into this eye and, uh, and induce a PVD. Maybe they'd be better off just with a straight buckle. Will, your thoughts? I, I like this paper a lot just because, uh, if, first off, if you look at the timeline, I think pneumatics were only introduced like a year before this paper came out, and they had already collected these cases and put together a, a, a hypothesis about the subretinal gas bubbles in the span of like six or nine months after the pneumatics were developed, which I think is just great, you know, fast-moving uh, 
literature here, which I thought was really neat. But yeah, the conclusions I think that are drawn from this are that even a small break and have subretinal gas go through it. They're oftentimes superior for obvious reasons. You know, the gas goes floats superior to go through the break. The obviously key issue is multiple bubbles. And so if you can, none of these cases had uh, only a single bubble observed at time of injection. So if you can get a single bubble at time of injection, uh, odds are you're going to be safe with it. And they actually made the emphatic declaration that they recommended you never let a patient leave the operating room or the procedure room where you inject your gas bubble with with fish eggs. Hmm. You consolidate them by some means or another rather than let them leave the OR with fish eggs due to the fact that there was a higher risk of that developing. And the the other point that they briefly mentioned, which I think is, is worthwhile, is if you're if you have the patient, let's say you do your pneumatic or your buckle with your injection of a small gas bubble, and you're looking at the patient the next day or the next week, and they're supine and your retina's right behind your lens, that is very likely gas dragging the retina up to the lens with it. So it's a kind of a diagnostic sign that you should consider gas under the retina if you see retina right behind the lens. The thwack technique with the cotton tip, I've always wanted to use that to... <laughs> I, was, that. I was about to say. Do it. <laughs> and, and, and for those who aren't reading the article, I will quote this. If multiple bubbles are present, a flexible cotton swab can be bent and released against the sclera over the location of the bubbles. This recoil technique sounds a dull thump as the cotton tip snaps against the eye, often resulting in a single large gas bubble. My favorite part is that what follows, though. The possibility of subflex lenses, dislocated intraocular lenses, <laughs> or hyphema secondary to displaced intraocular lenses must be considered as a potential complication of, this, of the thumb technique. <laughs> but, you know, you know, I, I, guess, I guess the question is if, or sorry to interrupt, Jay, but the question is so if, you, if you're doing yeah, a, go ahead. let's say, a primary buckle in the OR and you, they have a superior break and you inject your 100% SF6 bubble or C3FA bubble or whatever it is in the eye and it fish eggs in the OR, what are you going to do? So I, I, I didn't get tremendous fish eggs and I've done pneumatics. Maybe, I think it's just luck. I don't think it's, it's skill. There are things we'll talk about you can do to reduce that risk. I would, I would say this, and you guys can argue back at me and play as devil's advocate. I would say if your buckle is pulled up and the break is essentially nearly supported, almost supported on the buckle, unless you're still bullishly detached off the buckle and you're relying on the gas to kind of press things flat, I would say your risk is in theory lower, right, of subretinal gas, especially, I mean, there should be less space, right, for it to creep down. I know things always go, and we'll talk a little bit about oil in a second, things always go where we don't want them to go, but shouldn't that risk be lower than a straight pneumatic in the office? You think that? And they're also, I mean, they're also supine while you're doing this, right? So, unless the brake is super anterior, the bubble shouldn't be anywhere near the brakes at that point, and hopefully it will consolidate by the time the patient's upright. But you do think? I, I don't know, I, I, Ajay. I don't know if you have anything to add on that. Yeah, I, I would think the same, basically the same way that you just thought about it. I, I think it would be less likely if you're able to get that good apposition, especially because of the positioning. I wish we had video because Ajay right now is thumping his eye to see what will happen with the content. <laughs> My lens is not sublux yet. And one, one thing you could do is you could just not position the bubbles against the break, right? You could just put them with the macula, like them face down. And so they're, they're at least protecting the macula, but they're not anywhere near the, the superior break. I think you're right in principle, Jay, on that. But, you know, their comment is that none of these were subretinal at time of the procedure. They right. all became subretinal subsequently. So, you know, I, I hope you're right, but I'm not sure you are. That it still may sneak under even a well-supported superior break later on. I don't know. And well, at the risk of not being complete, um, we'll just talk about the injection technique, which has been taught in the reference article to reduce the risk of fish eggs. Try to make wherever you're injecting the highest point of the eye so that you're perpendicular as you enter. 
And then what they always taught me was you go, and Tornabi talks about this, you go into the eye and then you pull back just a little bit so that as you inject, you're inflating within the bubble rather than if you're too far in the eye, you're kind of squeezing and you get these little bubbles bubbling up to the top of the eye and you're kind of fish egging into that bubble rather than forming one bubble. And it's kind of that smooth, slow kind of injection, not super slow, but smooth versus a very rapid kind of pulse that may result in a lot of little bubbles. Yeah, and I also like to lower the pressure in the eye first. That's a that's a good point. Yeah, yeah. That, that makes sense. You should, the AC tap, I, and I, I agree, I like the AC tap first for a lot of reasons. And I think one of the biggest reasons is, that one, it makes the injection maybe a little easier to do this way, but I think the other thing is that you're not in a rush to do this injection, meaning that you haven't, or you're in a rush to do the AC tap, meaning that you haven't jacked their pressure up and now they can't see because you've injected 0.3 of volume in their eye and now you have to AC tap in a hurry and they're uncomfortable potentially because they're feeling that pressure. Yeah. So um, let's move on. We'll hit, quickly hit the last two. So it is visual field defect in association with chiasmal migration of intraocular silicone oil. This was a letter written in now 2005. I'll just kind of briefly describe what was described. This is a case report of a patient who had a detachment after cataract surgery, had a vit with gas, 5,000 cents of oil was placed and then he had a sudden onset temporal hemianopsia in the contralateral eye and elevated intraocular pressure in the surgical eye and presented 20-20 in the contralateral eye, light perception in the surgical eye, pressure of 35 despite drops in the surgical eye with emulsified silicone oil, completely cupped out and excavated nerve in the surgical eye. And then they did an MRI of the brain and then the left vitreous cavity had oil an identical signal was observed in the left optic nerve as well as the left half of the optic chiasm explaining the right hemianopsia. So they had to decompress the optic nerve and uh, when they cut the optic nerve as the transition to the chiasma, they found all this silicon oil within the chiasm and within the nerve. So this is scary. <laughs> we just referenced oil, things get wherever you don't want them to go and this is a case where the oil can it went through the nerve, went back, and went back to the chiasm, caused problems with the field on the other side. So that's not good. Ajay, your reactions besides nausea to this case? I mean, I've always heard about this happening. I guess this is probably the first report of this happening. I, I think what, what's even crazier is their management, where in order to prevent further progression of the visual field, they did decompression of the optic nerve, and it's just, it's certainly not something that I routinely talk about as a potential complication or subsequent surgery for oh, and my attachment patients. The field defect went away. Yeah. I mean, so it worked. Yep. So it's very interventional, but it did work. Yeah. Well, your thoughts, I mean, th this is a little bit different than the conversation we have with optic pits that comes up sometimes. This is a completely different animal, but this goes back to the point where oil just goes wherever it wants to go. It doesn't matter where it is in the eye. And I guess the nerve is part of the eye and the nerve is part of the central nervous system and so it can go anywhere it wants, but uh, why do you like this article? This is something that, just like Ajay said, we all we all have read about in some form or another, usually in fellowship. But I think when you when you get out of fellowship and you kind of get into your regular practice, it's easy to kind of forget about this kind of extraordinarily rare but like devastating thing. And nobody ever wants to have a neurosurgical procedure follow their retinal procedure um, for this a reason like this. But the uh, I guess kind of the moral of the story here is when you put oil in an eye and that eye has sustained high pressure with oil in it, 
you, you really need to be watching the optic cup and, and you really need to be asking yourself whether that oil should stay in the eye. And so I think that sometimes we, let's say an eye has a bad outcome and it's LP or something with oil in the eye. And the inclination is kind of just to forget about that eye. But I think that at least I've tried really hard that whenever I have a patient who has oil in an eye and, and high pressure, no matter what their visual potential is in that eye, I try really hard to take the oil out because I just I always worry about this extraordinarily rare thing. It's like sympathetic ophthalmia. You should, I think it should be treated like sympathetic ophthalmia mm. and always thought about. That's a great point, Will. That's a great point. But then, so I'm going to play devil's advocate on that point because what it's different when the pressure is 35, 40, 45. But what about a scenario where oil is being used, quote-unquote, to prevent tysis, right? So and usually those eyes tend to run lower pressure, not higher. But what about a scenario where we're putting oil in because if the oil is not there, that retina is believed to funnel and detach, his eyes and become tysical. And I'm not saying that's, that's worse than what you're talking about. This is much worse. But the question is, what is the relative risk of those things, and what is the number needed to treat to prevent? I'm not saying you're wrong. I'm not saying I wouldn't do the same thing. I'm just bringing that up as kind of the other side of the argument. Well, I mean, it's not to say that you have to take the oil out, but you'd have to control the pressure in some form or another mm -hmm. in that eye, or at the very least, be aggressively monitoring the cup, right? Because none of these cases had a, had a. I, I looked at I looked at this up. I looked at the whole published literature, and I think there's something like eight cases of something like this happening. And usually not to the chiasm, usually just into the optic nerve. But, but I don't think any of them had a non-cupped nerve. So, I mean, I guess you can stomach pressure in the 30s to prevent hypotony and tysis if you're really watching the nerve closely. And if that nerve starts to cup out, and then I think you have to lower the pressure in some form or another or take the oil out. Those are good points, yeah. Well, Ajay's eyes are starting to cup out from all this <laughs> retinal detachment talks. We're going to go to something more exciting for him, which is the cornea. So, last article is neurotrophic corneal ulceration after retinal detachment surgery with retinectomy and endolaser, a case series by Banerjee, Chandra, Sullivan, Charteris. This was uh, published 2014 June, so we really moved forward in time. Somehow, we didn't organize that chronologically, but that worked out really nicely. <laughs> but um, So, I'm going to describe this. So, this essentially is something that's been described in diabetic patients, but this is five cases of non-diabetic patients who got neurotrophic corneal ulcers after vitrectomy with endolaser, retinectomy, and laser to the edges of the horns of the retinectomy. Um, one of these patients also had medriasis. So the, the important points they took from these cases, these were not diabetic cases. This laser was not unusual. It's argon laser with standard settings. Every case had scarring at 3 and 9, which is what you would inspect with large retinectomies, 180 degrees or, uh, or bigger with inferior retinectomy. And so they concluded it's due to the ciliary nerve damage, posterior ciliary nerves uh, or long ciliary nerve damage, resulting in decreased corneal sensation and neurotrophic ulcers. So it's hard to take conclusions from this in the case of a retinectomy. What they suggested is what we all implicitly understand, we should be careful about lasering near the long surgery nerves, try to avoid doing heavy confluent treatment around them. However, adequate retinopexy still takes priority. So in the case of a 180 retinectomy or bigger, this may be difficult to avoid. Will, your thoughts first, and then I will give some thoughts on maybe ways you can potentially avoid this. Uh, I, in general, I try for this and other reasons to limit my laser and to if I'm doing it for, not, let's take out retinectomy for a second, but for just non-retinectomy cases, I try to avoid that area. And I usually, if I'm lasering some other areas, I, I kind of bring laser 
to roughly within a clock hour of the horizontal meridian and then bring it up to the aura and, and spare that area for this reason. For retinectomies, I, I've really tried hard not to do 180-degree retinectomies for this exact reason, but bring them up a little further superiorly. Mm-hmm. Because while you still need to laser the posterior edge of a retinectomy, you don't have to laser as aggressively. You have to laser the edge of the retinectomy, right. or the, the terminal edge. And so I'd rather laser a terminal edge heavily at the 2 o'clock and 10 o'clock positions rather than the 3 and 9 positions. Yeah, I, I was about to say, just oversize it just a little bit, go a little bit above, and then you still will be tracking through the nerve on some level, but it's not the same, right, as that very broad laser you're putting at the horn to kind of tack. You just have that thinner row along the edge. So that was exactly kind of the conclusion I would take from this and what we would try to do. Ajay, you, you're someone who, and, and I'm not going to throw you under the bus because I do this more and more often in some of these cases, you're someone who will have a low threshold to do 360 laser uh, if you're doing a vitrectomy, especially if there's pathology in multiple quadrants. Is this an area you intentionally avoid in these cases? Um, how much do you balance avoiding this versus if you have a concern, you know, going after and laser on the nerve? So if, if there's no pathology in those areas, I, I do tend to either just be a lot lighter in that area or space out my spots a little bit more in that area. But, you know, if there is pathology there that needs to be treated and there's no way to avoid it, then, you know, we certainly need to, to treat appropriately in that area. But I think what you guys were mentioning before is ways to try to avoid it, like making your retinectomy um, a little bit larger, certainly uh, a helpful thing to try to avoid this complication. So I find in the operating room when you're doing a vitrectomy, I actually don't think it's difficult once you know what to look for to identify the ciliary nerves. I think that you can identify them very readily and it makes sense to avoid them if there's no pathology, like you said. I'm going to throw a different scenario, you guys. You're in the clinic and you're lazing diabetic for proto diabetic retinopathy. I find it much more difficult to identify the slurry nerves depending on the patient in the clinic. Uh, maybe that says more about me than the wide field viewing systems, but my feeling is you just don't get that same sort of view for sure. So what do you guys do in that case? Do you kind of guesstimate where it is if you can't see it clearly? Do you just go for it because you need to reduce the ischemic drive and that takes priority? And it's a difficult decision, right? Because these are patients who are at risk for neurotrophic cornea, especially with the diabetes as well. And I'll let Ajay comment first. You know, I usually, when when doing the, the grid for PRP, I, I do try to, you know, knowing where the nerve should be, be a little lighter in that area. But I'm hoping that, that with these single PRP spots that are spaced out, that we wouldn't cause as much damage to it as as we would with when we're making more confluent spots around a tear or something like that. That being said, you know, even if, if you were to have your spots very, very close together for your PRP, then you could certainly run into the same issue. And there have been patients who have had this after PRP as well, especially the medriasis. Will? Yeah, same thing. I mean, if I see the nerves themselves, I'll, I'll, I won't laser over the nerves unless they're gigantic or something and there's a lot of space involved. But that and then I my only other kind of practical thing is that I always laser that area last just because it usually hurts more. But that's that's it. It's a good practice. Yeah. Well guys, we're a little over time. I'm happy to do the retinal attachment case, but we could also save that for another time, depending on whether Will's kids are awake or not. But if we are gonna close early, I would just to like I mean, I guess this isn't time sensitive and dependent, but Will, I'll give you two minutes to give the post-mortem on the Minnesota Vikings season, which ended yesterday uh, with the loss to the Eagles. First of all, I was very appreciative. I was listening to the other podcast that you were generous enough to put me on last week where my reception was terrible, and the reception was at its worst when I was giving my overconfident Vikings pick, which was perfect. So <laughs> I was right in that particular game, but I was wrong in the 
grander scheme of things. I don't know, man. It sucks. And to make the matters worse, it snowed like eight inches here today, the day after we lost. So <laughs> things and things are. It's, it's been a rough couple of days here in Minnesota, and now we have to now we have to host the Eagles fans and the Patriots fans for the next two weeks for the Super Bowl, which is just gonna <laughs> just gonna really pile on. So I'm I'm not feeling super uh, super happy right now. Well, unfortunately, given the number of people coming in, I'm sure a couple of them will have detachments for tears. So uh, we might have to put our, our colors aside for that. Well, um, guys, thank you so much for doing this as always. Uh, will and Ajay, you guys were both terrific and uh, look forward to doing this again soon. Thanks again for having me, Jay. Right. Have a great day, guys. As always, you can find this episode and all prior episodes on our website, retinapodcast.com. It's R-E-T-I-N-A podcast.com. All 87 episodes, including this one, can be found there sorted by category. You will also find our blog, Equal Round and Reactive Lessons from Our Pupils. On the website, you could sign up for our mailing list to get updates on the most recent episodes. You also could subscribe in the iTunes Store, and that can be found either on our website or in the podcast section of the iTunes Store as well as Google Play. If you want to tweet at us, our Twitter is at retinapodcast. And to contact us, click on the contact us link on our website or email us directly at retinapodcast at gmail.com. Feedback is super important to us. Both positive and negative helps us do better in the future as well as helps us think of better ideas for episodes that can be valuable to you. Uh, so anyone who, who subscribes, send us uh, feedback. And we appreciate all the positive reviews we've gotten in the iTunes store. And anyone who has yet to leave a positive review, if you could leave one, that would greatly help us as we move forward in the future. Many thanks to Dr. Curry and Dr. Park for their time. Thanks to Louis Kai, Mike Minicasa, and Angela Chang as part of the great production team. And finally, the listeners, thank you for what you do on a daily basis, the patient care you provide, the articles you read and publish, and the conversations you inspire here. This is Jay Schrader signing off. Good feeling. This is straight from the cutters.